Welcome to the Enlighten Up podcast. I'm Lisa Watson and will be joined by my co-hosts Nicole Frolick and Brian Koenigberg. The Enlighten Up podcast is a weekly show that provides an unconventional and refreshing spin on spirituality, where three friends and weekly guests share informative, fun, and usually off-the-wall conversations. Unlike others, we provide fringe and skeptical viewpoints on all topics, because our experience has taught us that the echo chamber is a boring place from which to learn. So regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, we can promise you, you're going to find a place to fit in here. So we invite you to grab a drink and listen in on our casual, entertaining, and hopefully enlightening conversation. And Enlighten Up is a self-funded podcast. So if you would like to help us to continue to be able to produce, enhance, and expand the show for our audience, then please send your support using the link in the show notes or go to our website, lightenup.us, and check out our merchandise shop where you can purchase merchandise that will allow you to express some spiritual humor. You may also show your support by leaving us a review on iTunes and following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting us. And now let's jump right into the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Enlighten Up podcast. We are so happy to be back with you this week. I'm here with Lisa and Brian. And today we are being joined by a very special guest who is going to be sharing his story with us that is quite moving and, well, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, We are joined by Frank Lifford, who is a quantum light coach and the owner of the Facilitating You Coaching Practice. He's a graduate of the Transcendence International Consciousness Academy, otherwise known as TICA, and a writer and editor. Frank is a student of the intuitive and experiential world and of unlocking our innate intuitive guidance system for navigating our unique sovereign path through life. In unraveling his own inner mysteries, he has discovered his purpose helping others to do the same. Frank, welcome to the show. I I see you are a fellow Canadian. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Nicole. I am... I am. I'm a transplanted Canadian. I do have allegiance to Canada and spent about a third of my life there. Um, so, yeah, on both coasts. Oh, really? Okay. I'm from Toronto okay. originally. So. so I've been on either side of you, and I've never lived in Toronto. I've, I've actually lived near Buffalo, New York, so just south of you, which is where I grew up. It's pretty uh, near Toronto. Yeah, it's fairly close. Yeah. So, but I've lived in Alberta, British Columbia, and New Brunswick. Oh, well, all beautiful provinces. And and where are you now? Right now, I'm in Kansas City, Missouri. That's oh. Brian's home state, yeah. Missouri. Yeah. I'm from Missouri. I'm from St. Louis. Uh-huh. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Except Frank isn't so stuck to the show me as much as you are. Because he's in Kansas City. No, but the the thing about wisdom is you aren't truly wise until you can demonstrate it, which is all about show me, even if it's just showing yourself. So, Frank, I understand you were part of the Heaven's Gate cult for quite some time from uh, ages 21 to 39. Is that right? Yes, oh, wow. correct. Correct. Yep, 18 years. Uh, Wowie. And for our listeners who don't or may not know who the Heaven's Gate cult is, could you tell us a little bit about them and their history? Well, they are notorious. Start with, I'll start with the end. For being the, the largest group suicide on U.S. soil. And that took place in 1997 in uh, San Diego. And at that point in the the group's history, really the end of their history, the the remaining group leader and 38 of his followers committed suicide with the intention that that would be their mode of ascension to what they believed was the next evolutionary level above human is, is what they called it or, or the next level for short um, so 
and of course that made huge headlines all over the U.S. and brought um, all over the world and brought uh, focus to cults in general. Um, but really, when you when you look at the cults beginning, of course, no cult considers itself a cult, mm-hmm. but you look at the cult's beginning, and the, there were two leaders initially. One of them passed on in, in the mid-'80s. Um, but they taught originally, when I joined in 1975, they taught about how the next evolutionary level above human, which they said was the same thing as the kingdom of heaven, that level could be entered while conscious and alive. And at, at 21 years old, I was, I would say, quite naive, but I had also explored lots of, of non-mainstream things like psychic phenomena and UF, UFOs, um, spirituality, some metaphysics, uh, which, of course, wasn't as common back then as it is now. So I was open to hearing what they had to say. And with their premise that this next evolutionary level above human could be entered while conscious and alive, that really intrigued me, and and I decided to to go further, explore it deeper. Did you seek them out, or were you recruited in some way? I suppose you could call it recruitment. Um, at, at that point in my life, uh, from age, well, I, I had been living in Calgary because my parents uh, moved there when I was 16 and I had a girlfriend at that point of three years and the two of us wanted to get an apartment together and before we did that we wanted to go on a vacation so we we traveled out to Vancouver visited cousins and friends out there and then dipped south to Oregon to visit my cousin who was going to college there. And I had, I had spent summers with him um, in Connecticut. Uh, so I, I knew and loved him very, I knew him well and loved him a lot. And so I was excited to go see him again. And when we got there, he, in the course of our visiting, showed us a poster that he had encountered around town. He was in Corvallis, the uh, University of Oregon there. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember exactly. I think it was the UFO to who they have come for, why they are here, and when they were then when they will leave. And it talked about a meeting. In, in in two days on the coast of Oregon in Waldport. Um, and the line that really intrigued me was, if you have ever entertained the idea of a real physical level above the human one, you'll want to attend this meeting. Hmm. So my cousin and my girlfriend and I decided to go to this meeting. And long story short, we we decided to go to a follow-up meeting based on what they talked about at the Walport meeting. And at that follow-up meeting, we made arrangements to receive a call in a week after we had gone home and tied up loose ends at home in order to meet them at some undisclosed location. So, so we did that. We, we went home the next day and didn't tell our families what we were doing. We just said we were going traveling. 
because we knew they would try to talk us out of it. We we didn't really have a, a long-term plan. We just wanted to see what, what was going on with this, wanted to learn more about it, wanted to explore with it. It was an, it was an adventure. So we met up with these folks, Tindo uh, and their followers. They're called Bone Peep at that point. Later, they were called Tindo, the two leaders. For the first year, we ended up uh, traveling across the country, crisscrossing the country, the U.S. A few groups went into Canada to hold meetings the same way that uh, Bo and Peep or Tindo had held meetings, talking about this next evolutionary level of a human and how membership could be achieved in it, how basically how ascension could be achieved through what they were teaching. So you said this is in the, the mid-70s? Yes, I joined the group. We joined the group. Actually, my, my girlfriend and I joined, as well as my cousin and his girlfriend all joined. How long How long had it existed prior? When, when, when did it very first start? Well, there were followers, I think, probably six or eight months prior to the meeting. That oh, so this was your ground floor. Pretty much. Wow. Uh, the, the people who left, who left their lives, so to speak, from the Waldport meeting created the big news splash across the country that is what triggered all the major networks carrying the story of this mysterious couple hmm. who triggered people leaving their lives, leaving properties, houses, even children behind to join this group. So they were in the news prior to the suicides. Yes. Well, they were in the news in 1975 due to the Walport meeting. And and then throughout the next year, I believe the two the two leaders actually held interviews with different um, different reporters, different news networks. I think at one point they were in the Sunday New York New York Times magazine with a full color spread. It wasn't really thought of as too much except crazy and nutty. It's basically people thought we were harmless. Um, so in the first year, we were doing this uh, proselytizing recruitment effort, and then Tindo decided it was time to stop the recruitment and focus on what they likened it to, which was an astronaut training program to become members of this next evolutionary level. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, how many, how many people were a part of this at that time? Initially there were probably as many as 200. Oh, uh, wow. As just a guess. And then, um, after T and Doe stopped the recruitment efforts, um, that number dwindled to less than 100, and ultimately over the next, I think, 18 to 24 months, it went down to less than 50. Mm. So when they stopped recruiting, did they sell it to you as, like they were putting a cap on recruiting, and because you guys were special, you were like chosen ones, and, and that was kind of it? Well, no, they didn't sell it that way, but um, it, it was it was like they wanted to get the, the show on the road uh, in terms of our preparation and our training. They regarded the ascension process as a, a graduation of sorts from the human level of existence into this envisioned next evolutionary level above human 
but there was there was a feeling of eliteness about it because we felt like we had information that wasn't available to anyone else. I mean that that wasn't really the case. Um, but that's how we felt. We did feel special. We did feel like we were members of an elite group. And all through the group's history, there was a feeling of us against them in terms of how Tien Do painted the world as a rotten place, a, a corrupt place. A lot of truth to that. Well, there is, there is, but there was a divisiveness about that approach because, I mean, you know, in what we know from from Jessica's teachings and, and just from our own awareness is that we all have light and dark within us. And yet we, as many spiritual practices teach, we are all of the same source. We're all of the same God. We're, we're all one. So to me, that was a, an aspect in which the group was off track. And, and, and when did you start feeling that? Because, you know, just, just hearing you describe it, it's interesting. It's, it's a training program. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're working towards, you know, an evolutionary step, but yet it took 20 years more than 20 years for them to finally, you know, execute that plan, if that plan even existed, you know, in, in 1975. Right. And Tindo never planned for this preparation process for graduation to take years. They, they felt like it would take months. Right. And it kept extending on and on. And the picture they painted to us as their students was that the reason that it's taking longer is because you guys, your students, are taking a longer time than expected to get prepared. Hmm. Uh, so in a sense, it was, a, it was an indirect guilt trip. Like, right. it, it's, right. it's your fault. So what were some of the things that you did on a daily or, you know, regular basis to prepare you? Well, they were, they were teaching lots of really helpful things. They were on track in many, many ways. They taught about kindness and consideration, being aware of behaviors, and increasingly over time, there were more and more guidelines and, and procedures that, that they gave us in terms of our astronaut training program or in terms of our preparation that we were given around all aspects of life. Um, how to eat, how to prepare food, you know, don't prepare more than you need, don't use more than you need of anything, be considerate of others. Um, when, when you make a decision, you use a check partner on that decision and you decide together and you give the decision-making power more than 50% of the decision-making power of the, each decision you make to your check partner. And if both of you do that, then you stand a better chance of making the right decision, making a decision that will, will serve you and everyone who, who's affected by that decision. But those procedures and processes and instructions that were received on a daily basis also dealt with when to go to sleep, when to wake up, how much to talk with each other, uh, how to think, how to deal with negative thoughts in your mind. Were you allowed to have any sort of outside socialization, like even television, or uh, did any of you work outside of the group? 
all, all good questions. We were basically cloistered, like uh, in in the monast monastic sense. Um, we, we had very little interaction with anyone outside the group, and there there were different phases that we went that we went through. Initially, we camped in campgrounds. Um, we had someone who was a benefactor for us who who pro provided funds for paying our monthly expenses for for um, food and gas for our cars and we quite often camped on blm land or we would make arrangements with a, a rancher to camp on the ranch lands out um in the boondocks so we would be undis undisturbed and the benefactor actually turned out to be my cousin his his dad was the president of the New England phone company and he had arranged for a trust fund for his children and so my cousin David donated his trust fund to the group so we wow. li lived off that for years until uh, we ran it dry and um, at that point we transferred from campgrounds into houses there were at different points there were as many as three dozen people living in one house um, and they handled it various ways like in smaller houses we would we would sleep in three shifts in the same bunk so there would be always be somebody sleeping in the bunk in, in the bedrooms and then you'd be up for the remaining 16 hours in, in whatever shift you were on. So when we moved into houses, about half of us moved out to work outside the group and in various jobs. I was a, a waiter at one point or a receptionist. And then I, I moved into software development, just picking it up as I went. Um, but, um, let's see, you asked about television. We, we did have certain approved programs that we watched, um, mm. like The Price is Right was one of them. <laughs> we, of we, could, we could also watch, uh, Star Trek. Oh, nice. Um, and then we we had a satellite service, so we would watch some of the non-mainstream TV programs about uh, UFOs uh, that were on, you know, back in the late seventies. Well, I guess they would, this would have been starting in the early eighties. Right. When we moved into houses. Um, Are you sure you didn't have a member named John Watson? No, not that I know of. <laughs> it's just so up my father's alley. I could so see him joining that. In fact, I'm I'm sure he probably told me about it when I was a kid, like that I should go join with him, but I declined. <laughs> that would be my guess. <laughs> yeah, that would have been smart to decline. <laughs> um, so I forget what else you asked. Um, socialization. We when we were working outside the group. We were always incognito. We never let on that we were part of a fringe group. Um, we and you guys knew. You guys knew this was. I mean, is fringe even the right the right word? Well, well we we knew that it wouldn't be well received. Um, okay. We felt like we would be interfered with if we were more public about what we were doing. We didn't. We think we thought people wouldn't really understand what we were all about, and we actually did have interference from whom? From from neighbors. Some of the hmm. houses we lived in, um, primarily because we we didn't we didn't blend in by any stretch of the imagination. We at certain points we 
had um, jumpsuits that we wore that so everybody looked the same in these jumpsuits. Oh. And um, so the goal of wearing the jumpsuits was that we didn't we didn't want to be different. There was nobody was different. Right. The emphasis was on, on avoiding uniqueness and to the point where like we were also celibate, we didn't have any sexual relations. And so the goal was to move into a place, both in our mental and emotional state of being as well as how we expressed ourselves of being androgynous of not relating Mm. to being either female or male and that was the goal so one of the one of the ways that we acted out according to that goal was to have all the same outfits so that we we didn't look male or female and that included how we cut our hair we all cut our hair fairly short so the men and the women both appeared to be the same and one result of that was when these suicides were found out by the san diego police department they thought that everyone would so, so at that point, I remember him bringing the group together. He, they called it a, a classroom. So he brought the class together and posed to them the possibility that maybe we should take up firearms, learn to use them, not as a way of causing a an armed conflict with anyone, but as a way of triggering the authorities to to do us in, Hmm. which was a huge red flag for me. But uh, at the same time, I was conditioned to the point where this was my teacher. He had provided tremendous information, tremendous wisdom to all of us. And I felt like I couldn't question, you know, whether or not this was a good thing to do. Well, I was I was going to say that when you mentioned that you needed to have a check partner uh, who would be responsible for more than 50% of the decision, that really creates two things. It creates a very codependent relationship where you don't have any sovereignty over your own self. And it also doesn't allow you to trust your own instincts. Right, exactly. That And that is a key point throughout the whole group. We, for me, for in my case anyway, I believe it's true for all of the members of the group, we were susceptible to the group and to giving our power away to somebody outside of us who we felt had our own best interest at heart even more than we we did ourselves so but to me that susceptibility had to be there imprinted from earlier in life like from the first 7 years in, in life when we're sponges to to everything around us especially from our parents and that was one of the main things they had way way off is what i believe now is we all have our own divine inner guidance system that we're born with but for so many of us just through societal pressures and conditioning it's conditioned out of us we we are taught not to trust it even though it's our best possible navigation tool that we could have so yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that that is the one primary thing that they had really, really off. Well, yeah, and, and it prevents a lot of people from leaving the group as well, because I would think that when you, if you were to ever finally leave, it would create such a a scary kind of 
um, internal environment for yourself on how you ever make your choices going on without your check partner. Right. Without your check partner or your older member or your teacher. Um, Yeah. And plus, you know, they, they continually, it wasn't that they designed it this way, but we continually had this carrot dangling in front of us that at the end of the preparation process, however long it took, would be our actual ascension process. Mm-hmm. And and that ascension process would allow us to, to take up membership in this completely different ocean of reality in which we would have a tremendous amount of greater freedom than, than we could ever imagine. And we would be the gardeners tending the garden that, you know, they called earth a garden of souls. And we would, we would be in positions of responsibility, which is one reason why the, the training was so stringent. They, Tindo believed all of this. They walked their talk. They were channeling something from somewhere, someone, I don't know who or what. If I had to guess now, I would say it was from a more um, hierarchical uh, mindset, similar to what to how the reptilian races, mm-hmm. the alien races are characterized. But I don't know that. And that's just my sense. Did your cousin and, and your girlfriends stay in the group? Yes. Uh, my girlfriend, my cousin, and my cousin's girlfriend all remained to the end and committed suicide with everybody. Wow. Oh, wow. Did, did, uh, I've been wanting to ask you, your family, at any point before you started to get the really big red flag, like the first one, were they ever concerned or did they know enough about what was going on that they started to question or did it create any sort of tension or um, strife with the family? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So we did, like, as I mentioned, we were, we didn't have a lot of outside interaction socially or otherwise, except to, you know, do grocery shopping or, or, you know, do laundry or whatever. When we were in campgrounds, we had laundry trips. Um, and that, that being cloistered and separate included not having a lot of communication with our families. And that did cause, um, upset with family members to the point where one of the families of one of the members uh, decided to create a family network and somehow made connections with somehow found other families and T and Doe were, were worried that the activities of this network family network group would cause interference in in our our preparation process. So, in the mid eighties, um, I think twice uh, we had. Well, well, before even that, we we would occasionally send postcards back to our families with minimal message messages saying, "We're fine. We're doing what we want to do." But that, of course, didn't satisfy their desire to connect with us and want to know more about what we were doing because we didn't tell them. And so it was getting to the point where they were hiring some members from families were hiring private investigators to try to track us down. And um, my cousin David, whose dad was the president of the New England phone company, got the FBI on our trail 
and so we needed we knew we needed to do something to appease their curiosity so uh we we did a couple of different visits over like a two or three year period back to our families just so they could see that we were healthy and fine um and the goal was to also assure them that we weren't brainwashed, but I don't think we succeeded with that. <laughs> uh, but but we did we did so we did have visits back to them on two occasions, and uh, but of course that didn't really help. They they were glad for the visits, uh, but um, and it appeased them somewhat, but. Uh, they they also didn't have enough information to satisfy their desire for connection with their loved ones, and, you know. Um, right. So I forgot what else you asked. No, that that was it. I I was just wondering because when do you get to the point where you start to really like? I know you've had like once they started talking about bringing firearms into the compound and learning how to um, uh, operate guns and shoot guns, that was a bit of a red flag for you. But when did you really start to come to an awareness that was starting to override the, override the, uh, the strength? Conditioning. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I worked outside the group, I think about a year prior to when I left, I left August of 93. And about a year before that, I worked for a, a woman in Phoenix who was a fairly new entrepreneur. She had a software development company doing business software. And I knew the kind of development that she needed. And I worked for a competitor of hers who was terrible business person, terrible customer relationship um, uh, practices. So I was I was interested in finding another job. So I found her advertisement, and she hired me right away. I was her first employee, and she gave me tremendous creative reign in, in terms of how I designed the software that I worked on. And when things went right and we had happy clients, which was a common occurrence, she gave me full full credit. So I get emotional thinking about it because she was such an affirming employer. And um, we're still friends to this day. And... So I worked for her about a year and before it was time to move to our next destination, which was San Diego, but the group moved quite a few times between that move and the final move to San Diego. Um, so, so of course, when we were moving, we had to quit our jobs and it became a common occurrence. Oh, it's, okay, it's time to quit our jobs. We know how to get jobs uh, in the new place. No big deal. And let me just interject. And this is because the trust fund ran out that you all now had to work, right? right? That we, we, we all, all worked because that was our source of income. So there were about half of us who worked outside the group. And we, we made a lot of money. We had a, we had a good, uh, good life, a good livelihood. Um, and so anyway, I quit my job. And then when we were driving from Phoenix to San Diego, we, we drove in, in like caravans, three different caravan groupings. And I was in the middle. And my, my girlfriend, Erica, was, um, stayed behind to do the final cleanup and pack up of of the the group's house. So I wasn't in the same group. I had a, had a check part with me in the car. 
And as we were driving to Phoenix, I started feeling this deep misgiving or this deep feeling in my gut that I could no longer stay in the group. And it, it overrode any mental or emotional conditioning that I had adopted over the, over the years, because it had been 18 years. So I brought it up to my check partner, and she said, well, bring it up to Doe and, and just see, see what he says. So I, I did. I, uh, when we got to San Diego, to our new house, I wrote a note to Doe, because that was the mode that we communicated with him. He received it, read it, and came to talk to me. And he said, well, sleep on it, and I'll talk to you in the morning. Uh, so that's what I did. I woke up and felt the same way in the morning. And he invited me to his quarters with four other group members, four other classmates. And it was kind of like an inquisition. Um, with Doe at one end of a table, me at the other and the other classmates along the long edge of the table on either side, kind of as a buffer. And he at first said that I hadn't done anything to displease him. So there's no reason, as far as he was concerned, that I needed to leave the class. And Oh, I, he made it about him, not you. Well, that was his first approach. And then, but I kept returning to this this gut feeling, which I now call a gut knowing, that I could no longer remain in the class. And so I kept expressing that to him. And so he, he changed his tactics a little bit and talked about how rotten the world is out there and that if I'm, if I go back out into the world, I will lose my opportunity to, to graduate with the class and go to the next level to become a member of the next level. And, um, and I, I will be plowed under the garden is going to be plowed under because it's the end of the season. And what that meant to him was that there will be major earth changes that will do away with the current civilization. And, and so things will start over. That was his view. And even that didn't put a dent in what I was feeling at, the, at my gut level. And so... After about 15 minutes of this back and forth with me saying the same thing over and over, he said, okay, um, we'll give you $1,000. You can uh, buy a plane ticket or a bus ticket or whatever to wherever you want to go, and we'll take you to the airport. And, and that was that. So I packed a duffel bag, and with... Uh, $600 cash in my pocket. They took me to the airport, San Diego, and I flew back to my parents in Calgary, Alberta. They were overjoyed to see me. <laughs> I bet. And started my new life as a citizen at large, which, you know, I didn't have a clue how to do that. Because I had been in this cloistered group for 18 years. And that's all I had known. Wow, this is incredible. So that was in 1993. And I can remember circling above the San Diego Harbor. It was a bright, sunny day. The plane was on its way to LAX, where I changed planes to Calgary. And I remember feeling higher than a kite. I was just so elated. I felt so free. And um, so I, I felt like I had made the right choice. 
That's how I felt when I got a divorce. Right. I can relate. I can relate. It was my divorce from the cult. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Sure. It's, it's probably no, a very freedom. similar feeling I mean, and I, process. And I don't really say that in jest. I mean mm-hmm. it. It's just like, wow, I'm now free to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and in the ensuing years from that point, from 1993, I went through all kinds of of dark nights trying to find out how to to live first of all how to adjust to life at large one thing i did have was was a a way to a way to make money i i had a a skill a skill that i could use it was software development so that was in high demand so I never lacked for income, but I didn't have a social life. I didn't know how to have a social life. I so I dove into work. Into work. I was a workaholic, right. um, but I also ended up exploring lots and lots of things. I I I, I had a stutter. I still have the remnants of it. Uh, which developed uh, probably in the late 80s um, as a, a symptom of the amount of suppression that I was doing to myself in order to fit in to the guidelines and, and, and the requirements of the group. Hmm. We weren't really allowed to be creative or unique at all. And that's that's one thing I forgot forgot to mention. I was going to mention that with the employer that I worked for the last year in the group, because of her her acknowledgement of my creative contributions to her business and to her clients – I felt safe to express myself authentically um, and to express myself creative. I felt safe to be me in that setting. And then contrast that with coming back to the group setting every evening and on the weekends in which everyone was a cog in the wheel of the for the for the greater good. I don't know if you, anybody's watched uh, Star Trek, but there's one alien society called the Borg, in which they're all plugged into the central computer. And you will be assimilated. Exactly, you will be assimilated. <laughs> and resistance is futile. And and Doe, the leader of the of the group, loved that. Uh, metaphor. He thought that was the greatest thing that that all of these members of this society were cogs in the wheel, and the society ran wonderfully smoothly. And yet, there was no uniqueness allowed, no creativity allowed, and that is a huge part of our lives. That's a huge part of why we're here is to express our uniqueness, to express our creativity. Right. So where were we? I forgot. Oh, I was talking about um, acclimating to being a citizen at large and the fact that I had this stutter was a huge it was a huge inner conflict to me how do how do i release this so i i sought out help from counselor counselors you know normal mainstream uh counseling i went to shamans um of various stripes whether it's um east indian or of 
Native American. I went to all kinds of personal development gurus. Um, all of them helped a little bit or temporarily, but didn't get to the core of what was what was going on internally. So, so I was on this search for not just how to live in the world, but how to understand the story behind the story. I always was interested in the story behind the story, realizing that there was more to life than what we were presented with on a daily basis through normal mainstream channels. And ultimately, I found personal coaches who helped more than anyone ever had. And um, my third coach was Jessica Alstrom, which I think all three of you know about. Yes. She's been on our show a couple times. Right. And she is, she has, she has been my most profound coach ever. I'm so grateful for her. I second that. <laughs> so that kind of, uh, that's the high points. I, I'm sure, you know, I could talk for hours and hours and hours. And I, I do have a book started. I started writing a book in 2015. Oh, wow. Great. About, about this experience? And yes. Journey? Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I have a publisher lined up for it, but I just need to finish the book. Every time I revisit the book, if it's been a couple months or six months, I feel like I have to rewrite half of it because of how much my viewpoint of of life and myself has changed. But the publisher agrees that I just need to get it out the door. I, I think yeah. that would be inc- very well received. So I would I would encourage you to. And having the publisher yeah. is the harder part, believe it or not. <laughs> a lot of people write books, but they can't get the publisher. So you're you're ahead of the curve. You're 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 doing pretty good. Right. I'm really, I'm really happy with this publisher because she, you know, the normal royalty level is like something like five to 7%. And this one will do all my marketing for me. She's, she's very adept at marketing through social media and whatnot, ongoing, not just, you know, not just an initial blast. And she'll, her royalty fee, her royalty level is 25%. So, um, Plus, I really like her. She's really a, a just a good person, and so I can't wait to finish the book. Oh, good! Yeah, I. You have to sell a lot of books to get even a little right. bit of money. Right, it's, right, uh, right. It's one of those kind of like misnomers. Like I'll write a book and get rich. Yeah, people have a yeah a skewed perception of like you know oh you're an author you make so much money and it's like you know you have to be one of those like really good authors to be making 